And this is episode 74. My God, 74? We've done 74? <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Amazing. All right, we, we, we should retire soon. <laughs> Welcome to Twill, the Weekend Health Law, the Medicaid extended podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on October 19th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by my incredible co-host. Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the Francis King Carey School of Law in the University of Maryland. And just a quick reminder, dear listener, that it only takes a moment for you to go to iTunes and rate the show. Please help us out here. Uh, any kind of comments or uh, uh, hopefully positive reviews uh, would really help the show and get us uh, some more listeners just like you. So this week on Twill, we're very, very pleased to greet Larry Singer uh, from Loyola University Chicago School of Law, uh, where he serves as Associate Dean of Online Learning and Director of the Beasley Institute for Health Law and Policy. Professor Singer is an expert on legal and strategic issues surrounding the organization of healthcare institutions and teaches courses in the area of corporate and regulatory health law. A real pleasure having you on the pod, Larry. Pleasure to be here, Nick and Frank. Thank you very much. So just two, a few things lying around on the desk. I've got three very quick follow-ups, really, I guess, here, Frank. The risk corridor payments issue still seems very controversial. Um, Recall that the GOP-controlled Congress added a revenue-neutral provision um, in late 2014 to risk corridors. Um, And there's a great uh, blog post by um, Tim Jost in Health Affairs, if you want to go back to that stage and and, and read about it. Uh, Subsequently, uh, the uh, the insurers who missed out have sued uh, the federal government, and the government is looking to settle using the permanent appropriation that is in the judgment fund. And there have been various threats going back and forth about this, but there have been formal complaints uh, over the last week or so by Senate Republicans who are arguing that Treasury does not have the power to circumvent congressional powers of appropriation in this way. Next quick piece of follow-up, um, our old friends, the Texas Medical Board, uh, recall that they're in the middle of a telemedicine uh, uh, litigation with um, Teladoc, and we've talked about this uh, uh, suit several times on the pod. Well, uh, the last mention we had of this in Lightning was um, that the case had gone up to the Fifth Circuit on the judge's refusal below to dismiss the Teladoc suit. Well, the medical board has now dropped that appeal, and they're going to stay uh, with a trial uh, below in the uh, district court. Don't know what the strategy was there. Maybe um, with the FTC and other amici lined up before the Fifth Circuit, there was a bit too much to lose as a matter of law before the appellate court. So better maybe to um, to go down and, and play on the merits. But uh, mere speculation there, folks. And finally, in the follow-up, uh, our friends at ONC have released uh, the final rule on health IT certification. If you recall, the NPRM on this got blasted by most stakeholders for overreaching. And the final rule, which just weighs in at a a, a, a very modest 257 pages, seems to tone things down, and it certainly has already won AMA approval, rather than the sort of gung-ho program originally envisioned by ONC, uh, the final rule now says that their additional layer of scrutiny will be limited to cases of serious risk to patient safety, or if there is some inability in the usual EHR certifiers to investigate. 
I don't know, Frank. This still seems to me to be something that, if it does involve uh, serious risk to patient safety, should be on the FDA's plate. Um, and I, I, I still wonder whether the ONC is a, uh, a an office looking for something to make itself relevant. But uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about that. It is a really tough issue in terms of the interagency coordination here. And I agree, I'd like to see something uh, more vigorous. I've also got um, some items, um, which are, I'll start off with the new uh, Harvard study on unaffordable cost sharing that was in Stat News and a friend of the, uh, friend of the pod from Stat News uh, from Pharmalot was at our ASLME meeting and um, I always love to read Stat News and this was coverage uh, from the Harvard Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation, their discrimination complaint with the Federal Office of Civil Rights stating that um, un- affordable cost sharing was being imposed particularly on individuals with AIDS um, and that this was a way in which insurers were essentially skirting the pre-existing conditions rules um, coming out of the ACA. I think that's definitely something to watch in the future. Um, another item that I think is of great interest, uh, sort of a duet of items, is the Washington Post had this terrific article this week on um, titled The Industries, Drug Industries Answer to Opioid Addiction is More Pills. And, you know, there was a bit of a brouhaha, I think, over the Super Bowl earlier this year when one of the biggest ad buys was for a pill to treat the uh, constipation after taking opioids. And uh, yes, some of the examples in the in the the story are quite surprising, and you know they all, they also seem like things that we uh, might have thought have been dealt with in the past. Like for example, giving people one type of mood stabilizer that needs to be counteracted by another, but needs to be counteracted by another. Um, but one positive side of the news here is that there's a growing movement uh, for what's called deprescribing, um, responding to polypharmacy. And I just wanted to connect that to an ongoing uh, struggle by pharmacists to get provider status. And it's a really interesting issue when we think about the future of value-based care, how pharmacists and some of the other uh, folks in the current medical care landscape are going to fit into that. The final example I'll give is just from the, or the final issue is the uh, an issue in what's called computational pathology that was mentioned in the White House reports on artificial intelligence last week. Uh, they had two reports. One was a national research strategy. The other was sort of looking at how AI could be used for the public good. And it, they gave some very good examples of AI in pathology not replacing pathologists, but reducing error rates significantly. And I think that's going to be the big watchword in automation and medicine over the next few years is not, you know, the fantasy of the doctor replacing robot, but uh, automation that complements human expertise. And it's a really good example. And I'm just glad to see that in uh, one of the reports. Well, I'll see your White House report and (laughs) raise you with a JAMA Internal Medicine research letter. Um, uh, We had this week a comparison of physician and computer diagnostic accuracy that was uh, passed, and they looked at diagnostic apps and websites and so on, and they compared them to the same sort of vignettes if um, uh, actually done by physicians. Um, And 
uh, the numbers were very heavily skewed towards our um, current boring old regular physicians um, <laughs> uh, who tended to uh, list the correct diagnosis first. Uh, more often, uh, that's 72.1% uh, compared to just 34% uh, uh, for the, um, the automated uh, trackers. So uh, I, I think we have some, some way to go. All right. So next, uh, how about a, a quick trip to Europe, Frank? Excellent. <laughs> We've talked before about the strength of the new European General uh, Data Protection Regulation. Well, there's still life, you know, in the old Data Protection Directive um, that uh, forms a basis for much of the uh, EGDPR. Uh, um, there's a new case. Uh, it's C582-14. Uh, it's the Breyer case. And the issue there came from a, a German um, appeal to the European Supreme Court as to the status of log files of web visitors' uh, dynamic IP addresses and, and the extent to which websites could store those log files. And in a very recent preliminary ruling, the Supreme Court of Europe, European Supreme Court, uh, has ruled that those IP addresses are indeed protected data points and therefore are subject to the privacy directive. But they did give websites a little bit of a let out in that these IP addresses could be stored for security purposes, so to try and stop cyber attacks and so on. But clearly, this is another privacy ruling by the European Supreme Court, just like the uh, right to erase the Spanish case that we saw a year or two ago, that is going to have an impact on U.S. businesses, including some health businesses, uh, doing business in the EU. Yes, I think that's very perceptive. Yeah. And I'm going to finish with a somewhat obscure Indiana appellate court decision. The case is Parkview Hospital versus Frost X-Rail. Riggs and the Indiana Appellate Court decided this case in March of this year. We've had over the last month oral arguments before the Indiana Supremes and they very narrowly refused to accept review of the case and so the appellate uh, ruling stays. Um, and it's a rather interesting little piece that, that fits in with some of the things we've discussed here. The patient in the case was badly injured in an auto accident and stayed in hospital and then in a skilled nursing home for well over a month. Um, other than a little auto medical pay, med pay um, policy, he had no health insurance. So upon discharge, he gets hit again this time for a bill for $625,000. Um, so immediately, if you're you know, using this in, in the classroom, you've got the whole issue of um, uh, balanced billing and uh, unbalanced billing, I suppose, in this case, uh, you know, where charity care comes in and so on. The hospital then proceeds under the state lien law and under the state lien law, the patient can challenge the reasonableness of charges uh, under that statute. And so what the uh, patient did was he disputed the amount and asked to bring in the hospital's charge master and then make an argument from the charge master and how others were billed from the charge master as to the reasonableness of the charges against him. The, um, the hospital moved for summary below, arguing that there should be no uh, admission uh, of this evidence. And the, uh, the trial court uh, disagreed with that, 
saying that the evidence should be discoverable, the charge master should be discoverable, and were admissible under the Lean Act. And of course, that was then approved, uh, uh, okayed by the appellate court and now uh, uh, implicitly by the Supreme Court. So it does raise the fascinating issue of, of how you could actually now practically get to a charge master. And it will be very interesting, won't it, to see how the hospital proceeds, which is the worst risk, uh, publicly displaying the charge master or maybe settling this case for a lot less than 625000 <laughs> Yes. Now, that is true. It reminds me of the controversies over... Uh trade secret protected uh, prices of devices and procedures that I think Anne-Marie Bridie wrote about about eight years ago. And um, just a fascinating issue in terms of, you know, is pricing information an aspect of market-produced goods that itself should be treated as intellectual property, or is the transparency of such information itself necessary for markets to function? And by the way, for anyone interested in healthcare antitrust or antitrust in general, there's a fantastic uh, new book coming out this uh, November, Mark Patterson at Fordham called Virtual Competition that goes into exactly that issue of uh, information's role in markets. Um, on a, a, another note that is sort of a perhaps a macabre uh, gallows humor for our Hall Halloween uh, time, um, I saw recently that in Mexico, a, uh, a patient had been treated and I think she was on vacation from the U.S. Um, in the Cancun hospital. She had some major heart issues and uh, the bill was about $400,000 and they basically took her hostage. Um, and so it's kind of amazing to uh, see this sort of news. I guess the bottom line of that is um, buy your medical insurance before traveling abroad. Or just buy your medical insurance wherever you are. Yes. <laughs> um, on the, the, the topic of, of costs and charges, I don't know that we've got time, Frank, to go into it in any detail, but I think we should probably um, schedule it for a, a future a future twill. We've certainly had some um, health economists on recently who've uh, alluded to it and told us to you know get on the value bandwagon. Uh, but we should note that um, also over the last week we've had the final macro uh, rule. Um, what is it? Twenty four hundred pages? Yes. Some something something unbelievable. And one even one one has no real sense of how to start. But I guess uh, at least uh, one early observation is that there does appear to have been a bending over backwards by CMS to make the first couple of years look very, very soft and a comfortable landing for physicians. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't see an awful lot going on in 2017 and 2018 um, as far as evaluations or uh, much of anything like that. Um, and I'm, I'm, I talked to my... Uh, my health students this morning that it very much reminded me of uh, David Blumenthal's uh, escalator uh, metaphor that he used with regard to meaningful use, and obviously meaningful use is part of of MIPS. Um, that you know you have to. I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote. Uh, that uh, you know you you have to uh, get the, uh, the the providers on the escalator moving in the direction and upwards to where you want them to go, but not make the path too steep such that they fall off. 
nor make it too shallow that in, in fact you end up not with an escalator but one of those annoying moving um, walkways uh, like you find in airports um, and uh, clearly that's that's what's going on here um, for the, anyone who is interested we'll put in the the show wrote, show notes I I thought the uh, the very brief piece by Emily Rapley in um, Becker's uh, hospital review uh, was really quite uh, uh, a pithy uh, first look um, at as she puts it the six must know parts of the macrofinal rule but this is something that we will be returning to right Frank absolutely Larry it is so great to have you on the show and um, we got a chance to talk a little bit before the show about you know what's going on in the Chicago market, uh, nationally, et cetera, in terms of uh, the ACA implementation, ongoing effects uh, in terms of the finances, other issues for hospitals. And one of the questions I'm really interested in is your perspective on whether inequalities among hospitals are getting better or worsening after the ACA. Well, first I'll say it's just a real uh, thrill and honor to be with both you and Nick. Um, so I'm very grateful to be here. And, you know, I guess I'm, I'm struck, Frank, by, you know, it's it actually seems long ago because it is sort of long ago. You know, Nancy Pelosi's famous quote that we have to pass the bill in order to know what's in it. And, you know, we all sort of joked about that, but actually it's <laughs> turned out to be true. And I think part of it is understanding what the law actually says and then understanding how the industry has reacted to it. And from that perspective, I think uh, the Affordable Care Act is actually a really fascinating case study. And the issue that you're raising with respect to inequalities, if you will, between hospitals and health systems, I think is you know, really front and center in sort of these unintended consequences, if you will, things like the consolidation wave that's really hit, and hit uh, hospitals and health systems. A moment ago, you were talking about macro and the significant impact that it's going to have on house on physicians long term. And, you know, those of us on the pod know, I mean, the amount of consolidation that's occurred within physician practices themselves, along with hospital health system employment of physicians, really has been, it was underway prior to health reform at the federal level. But I think we'd all agree it's it's really been fast-tracked as a result of that. I do think the point that you've raised with respect to inequalities is one that isn't necessarily getting a lot of attention. Um, people aren't oftentimes sympathetic towards hospitals and their plight, but it, it actually is one, I think, of significant import. You know, as I've talked about this for a long time, and, and like you two, teach, uh, teach in the health law area, you know, I've often sort of used the analogy, if you will, of the haves and the have-nots. And, you know, we can use that lots of different ways to, to talk about different aspects of our societal structure. But in healthcare in particular, um, that's, that notion of have hospitals, if you will, those with really strong market share, those with desirable geographic presence from a financial perspective, uh, those that have been very fortunate with respect to their payer mix, uh, high, uh, uh, high insurance, commercial insurance, Blue Cross, Aetna, United, those sorts of things, reasonable Medicare, low Medicaid, not making a societal judgment on any of that, but just looking at it from a pure hard dollars and cents. You know, those hospitals for a long time have uh, largely been, been blessed, quite frankly, with very strong financial uh, condition. In contrast, I think, with what we typically think of when we talk about the safety net hospitals, you know, those that serve a, a largely challenged population, 
um, very high Medicaid or self-pay, which often means no-pay population. Uh, many times in a in an urban area, um, sometimes public hospitals, um, very financially challenged, often standalone, and so that and and you know it's kind of a uh, setting up a disparity, obviously between rich and poor, so to speak, and and there's lots of gradations in between, but just sort of going with that picture, if you will, that distance that always existed between sort of the the wealthier institutions and the poor institutions, I actually think has broadened over time. And I don't blame that on the Affordable Care Act per se. I think it's been a lot of the market reaction to it. So the the wealthier hospitals have joined wealthier systems oftentimes. And, and the, the poor hospitals have oftentimes been left as standalone facilities that can be very challenged or in much weaker from a financial perspective systems. And, you know, I'll come up for air in just a second, but, but that dynamic, I think, is, is playing out in part because um, we've got a challenge, challenging reimbursement system. We've got rising consumer expectations. So we expect more from healthcare, more, more oftentimes meaning more expensive, the newest treatments, the newest modalities, the newest equipment. Um, the physicians certainly expect that, and you know, as our advocates, that's perfectly appropriate. But but I do think the the end result of a lot of these competitive pressures, financial pressures, consumer expectations, reimbursement challenges, has been that the strong have gotten stronger, largely, and the weak have likely gotten weaker, and at, and at best have sort of held their own. Uh, so even at the holding stage, I think the distance has really grown quite substantially. Do you think there's the argument to be made, Larry, that in fact, we will see that disparity um, accelerate? I mean, when I think in terms of um, uh, the readmissions penalties, for example, which clearly, um, uh, some would argue, are disproportionate because of the demographics of the hospitals, um, we saw, we mentioned a few minutes ago, Meaningful Use. We saw during the Meaningful Use program a real struggle by the smaller, um, uh, less well-resourced hospitals to do really, to, to let's face it, to do Meaningful Use. Um, you can see how, uh, you know, we talked about MIPS and, and MACRA and so on. You can see how um, less of, uh, the smaller hospitals maybe are less able to uh, operate within the value-based purchasing. Um, and equally uh, probably have a much easier job of coming up with a China compliance. Um, and I wonder just how many more we could add to that list and, and see these hostels begin to circle the drain. Yeah, I, I uh, wholeheartedly agree with you, Nick. And I, and I think um, the challenges that our safety net institutions are going to have are going to just really compound radically. I mean, their ability to afford the capital necessary to meet expectations, and quite frankly, their ability to attract the expertise um, that is really needed to respond to MACRA, to respond to value-based purchasing, to understand what your costs are, to work with your physicians. This is not disparaging the the wonderful work that they do. If anything, I'm a strong advocate of what safety nets are. What I'm saying is that the current way that 
the the market is is uh, responding to the competitive threats that we talked about a moment ago is really upping the challenges that these vital organizations have and the role that they play in their community. I really agree with you, uh, Larry, and I wanted to you know connect this thematically to a couple of uh, decisions that the Obama administration had to make. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sort of a good time for a retrospective now. Um, one, of course, being that uh, with the exchanges, there was the decision that the 9.5% threshold in terms of percent of income that would be you know necessary to pay for premiums, et cetera, that that would apply to just individual, not to family coverage. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I think is you know in the same vein is its position in terms of Medicaid's equal access provisions in Douglas versus Independent Living Center back in 2011 and some other cases where they very forcefully sided with states that tried to reduce the enforceability of the equal access provision in terms of the uh, requirement that they set reimbursement rates that are sufficient to enlist enough providers um, so that care and services under Medicaid are available in a way that's comparable to, you know, what other um, uh, providers would be providing. And I just uh, am thinking that, you know, maybe the grand, we hear a lot of celebration from Andy Slava and others uh, of the lack of insurance rate in the U.S. going below double digits down to like 8.6% now. But perhaps the price of that, looking at Medicaid elsewhere, was sort of creating this uh, two-tier or multi-tier system where the we really have a lot of under-insurance. Yeah. In, you know, we talked for a moment about the impact on institutions and not to turn this into a love fest with you two guys, but, but I, <laughs> I absolutely agree with you, Frank. You know, the aspect of how this is playing out at the patient level um, also deserves even more attention because these stories become extremely personable. And you know, because you and I have talked about this in the past, I have a, I have a passion for um, care for the underserved and I'm very concerned about what, frankly, I think we've always had in the U.S. of sort of this two-tier system. I, I think just like we're talking about with respect to the institutional impact that's occurred in the in the hospital industry, for example, we're seeing that play out on the patient care side as well. So, you know, the Affordable Care Act, I think, has done nothing is perfect and, and there are issues and we're seeing that play out particularly on the exchange side and some of the cost side, quite frankly. Um, But, you know, it has reduced the amount of uninsured. What I don't, and largely I think because people, you know, the Medicaid roles have grown. The point that you've raised, I think, is the one that we really, one of the most important we need to focus on is it it also has had a significant impact on the rate of the underinsured. And we're seeing that, I think, in a couple different ways. Certainly on the Medicaid side, and I'll pick our own state not to be disloyal to Illinois, um, you know, we're a blue state, so we, um, we uh, grew the, the Medicaid program in line with the Affordable Care Act. We, we expanded coverage and so forth. Um, I think the listeners on the pod may know, or I'll share with you now, you know, uh, Illinois is number 50 out of 50 as far as financial integrity. Wow. Um, we are in a temporary budget situation after having gone almost a year without a budget. We're on sort of a temporary stopgap budget that I believe will expire at the November election. So basically, we we haven't had a state budget effectively for almost a year and a half now. We have, I think, $110 billion shortfall in our pension plans. 
we're at junk bond level. So not to go on and on, because I love living in Illinois, but from a financial perspective, very bad. And so that type of financial situation plays out very strongly in the Medicaid program. Many of our providers are at about 200 days wait for payment. And it's also payment that generally is somewhere between 60 and 80% of cost. So while expanding Medicaid is better, just looking at it from a financial perspective, better than no pay, self-pay, quite frankly, um, it still leaves quite a hole. And if you translate that, then again, just looking at it from the pure dollars and cents of the value of this patient to a provider, physician, hospital, whatever, is being paid by the Medicaid program, you could see that these individuals that are on Medicaid that deserve the exact same level of access and quality and comfort and so forth to healthcare are not going to be welcomed with open arms from a pure financial perspective. And so you're we're experiencing now shortages in specialists, especially those that are unaligned with health systems, so independent practitioners. Um, you know, seeing a Medicaid patient and getting paid uh, 200 days later at a rate below cost is not a way to, to stay in business. Um, we see that in the dental industry. There's pretty much, I'm sure there's someone, but it's not too blanket a statement to say there's really uh, no dentist that will serve Medicaid unless they're part of a health system or, or an employee of a federally qualified health center. I mean, real people are being impacted by the decisions that are being made and the funding going into it. So we've now got a situation where we have people walking around with an insurance card believing that they have coverage and finding out that it's not the coverage that perhaps many of us that are blessed to have uh, private insurance uh, uh, have. Similarly, and then I'll come up for error, um, the three of us know, and I'm sure many of the listeners of the pod know, that the uh, the deductibles that are um, being uh, offered in order to keep the monthly premium down on the exchange plans are quite significant. Oftentimes, three, four, five thousand dollars or more um, people are not necessarily aware of that because when they purchase the insurance, they assume they'll be healthy. And all of a sudden, for many intents and purposes, they're kind of going what the insurance people call bare. They don't have coverage for that first amount of money, and, and it's a very significant amount for, for many of us. So, um, you know, we, we've got the same thing that has been occurring at the institutional level is really impacting individuals. And it's a, it's a very um, disheartening, quite frankly, uh, state of affairs. And obviously for the affected folks, very scary. Uh, because when you want your insurance to kick in, you may find that you don't really have the coverage and the degree of coverage that you truly expected it to have. Obviously, some of the, um, the issues you raise with Medicaid are longstanding ones and, 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 and predate the Affordable Care Act, but if you, if you, if you are in the Obama administration, um, I guess the, uh, and you're not the governor of Kentucky. Um, what you might point to is the the relative incredible success of um, Medicaid expansion. Um, but we're about to leave the hundred percent, aren't we, for or very soon, and go to ninety percent. And with the kind of budget crises like you describe in Illinois. 
that 10% presumably is more than a rounding error. Do you have a sense of how that might play out in, in some states, Larry? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, there's a political overlay clearly to the states that opted to expand Medicaid and those that didn't. And, you know, that's just part of the story and everyone has their own judgment on that. But irrespective of how you feel about Medicaid expansion, I think the issue, Nick, that you've put on is quite legitimate, which is that that uh, 10% is is going to be for many states. And I don't have the figures for Illinois, but, but it's going to be significant. Um, and the other piece that I think people uh, need to remember is that the um, the hundred percent now ninety percent that the federal government is is paying for the Medicaid program is just for the expansion piece. Anyone else who would have been qualified for Medicaid originally is still at the fifty you know fifty fifty match or whatever it varies by state, but oftentimes it's dollar for dollar. So, you know, some of the growth that's hit the states, quite frankly, has been individuals that would have qualified for Medicaid pre-ACA, for whatever reason, hadn't signed up, now have signed up. And so they're at the the one-for-one match. And so you've got states often getting hit twofold. They're getting hit because of the, let's call it the regular expansion of the Medicaid rolls, and then they're getting hit because of the the expansion of, of individuals that are now eligible for Medicaid, and admittedly, again, at that higher level. But, you know, we're talking significant dollars here. And so anyone who studies this may have their own political view or ethical view or whatever view, however you want to, whatever adjective you want to use to describe describe uh, individuals' uh, rights or not to, to insurance. But the dollars are significant, and um, I, that I, I clearly understand and, and don't discount. I think it ultimately becomes a value judgment based upon the particular state as to, you know, how they weigh that, uh, that dollar commitment versus other things that uh, they're trying to accomplish. And I think that's a, a kind and honest way of looking at it. So looking forward a bit, when we think about uh, the likely election, we're recording the show October 18th. Um, it looks pretty likely that Hillary Clinton will be elected president. Um, we're not so sure about the composition of the Senate. And bizarrely enough, we're not completely sure about the composition of the House, despite the uh, great gerrymander of 2010 um, or post-2010. And so what we're sort of wondering now, I guess, is if the balance of power in the Senate, uh, we know that this could have profound impacts on the future composition of the Supreme Court or whether there is a nine-member Supreme Court in the future um, for the next few years. Could this affect Clinton's plan, say, with respect to improving the ACA? There have been a flurry of articles in the New York Times and elsewhere saying, you know, we've really reached a critical point where we need some fixes put in. Is that, you know, do you think that that this is a matter where uh, the politics of the Senate matter much, or is it a matter where perhaps the real action is going to be on the regulatory level? Well, you know, we're all lawyers, and we learn as lawyers to always give two answers instead of one, right? (laughs) (laughs) So um, I guess I'll I'll say yes to both of your questions. Um, You know, as you get older, you fight sometimes to maintain your optimism, and I think I'm an optimistic person, and I try not to be naive. There's clearly the the fixes, so to speak, that even the president has talked about. You know, it's a fact. The exchanges are kind of cratering. You know, we, we have... 
uh, regions of uh, the the country that don't have co- competitive offerings on the exchange. You know, um, the prices have become unaffordable for many people. The federal subsidies have to have grown. The deductibles and that we talked about a moment ago and the coinsurance, those are significant dollars. Sort of the promise that people would be able to purchase on the exchange and not be tied to job lock becomes, you know, I don't think that's really happened well. And so, um, you know, you'd like to believe that after the heat of the election, there will be sort of a kumbaya moment that will occur um, where, you know, forgive the, this is not my building burning down, by the way, but I can't stop the sirens. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, you'd like to believe that there will be some kind of moment where people will be called to their greater angels and figure out a way to make reasonable, appropriate cuts, not to destroy the law, um, to recognize that it's now going to live on, um, um, if there's a Democrat president, uh, but to to actually improve it for the better of all. So, you know, that that would be my hope on the legislative side, because I think some of those things are probably is a legislative fix, too. I'd say yes, Frank, to your question on the regulatory side, because, y- you know, my hope would be that um, with a new president in place, the notion that somehow the law is going to go away, at, that the states have maybe, you know, held out for, um, is also going to be over, and that even though, as as Nick pointed out, and I agree, there's a substantial cost associated with that 10% differential, the amount of federal dollars that could flow in to really help some of, frankly, some of the poorest states in our country that haven't opted to expand, very significant. And so my hope would be that some of this was just personal to President Obama, with him no longer in office, the temperature will cool, the states will um, look at some sort of creative expansion, and this is where I think if it's a if it's a, a President Clinton, um, she has an ability, you know, within her own to grant Medicaid waivers. Um, I think there could be more creative work um, in that area to try to encourage states to, you know, yes, expand Medicaid, but maybe do it in a way that's somewhat politically palatable for them. Um, and frankly, perhaps even more creative, you know, sort of the laboratory of the state's idea. Um, I suspect there will be a lot of looking through to see what can be done from a regulatory perspective to bypass Congress, um, you know. Um, but, you know, so I, I think all those levers are going to have to be pulled because, you know, look, healthcare continues to be extremely expensive. I think all of us agree it's absolutely vital. And it's in our collective interest, politics aside, to have high-quality, low-cost health care for as many people in the country. Frankly, I feel everyone, but, you know, as many people in the country as we can. And so you'd like to believe that temperatures will cool enough and, and that that will happen, recognizing the difficulty uh, associated with that. Federal initiatives or, or uh, regulation aside, is there anything that you're following in the states, Larry, uh, that interests you from, um, you know, uh, price uh, drug prices in California uh, to any of the other state initiatives? Uh? You know, I can't, I can't say, uh, Nick, to, to confess that I track it on a state-by-state level to pick some of that up. I mean, clearly Arkansas, um, with its 
notion of of sort of using uh, Medicaid dollars to buy have folks buy on the exchange is interesting. I'm personally not convinced that's actually going to be a money saver. I I understand sort of the competitive notion behind that. In, um, and, and I'll come back to that thought in a minute. You know, clearly it's interesting, I think, and perhaps for you two as well, because we've all been at this a little while. Um, you know, you're really seeing the push towards um, managed care and HMOs all over again, which which a little bit died out when we went to sort of the preferred provider organization model. Now we see that really coming back strong on the, particularly with the Medicaid population, in part because you know, it's uh, it's government uh, uh, funded, and so you know you've got to sort of play by the rules. But like in Illinois, for example, we have a very very strong push to Medicaid managed care, very strong. the The dollars to the providers haven't grown, um, but it's all being it's all moving to contract through these large Medicaid uh, uh, managed care uh, agencies. So we're clearly seeing some of that occur. It's interesting, I think, if you look outside of what we've been talking about at the accountable care organization model, the ACOs that uh, Medicare is relying a lot upon, and without getting us too off track, um, you know, a key component of that is essentially that the patients uh, can go anywhere, but the the ACO, the accountable care organization made up of a hospital or a health system and physicians, is still going to be accountable for the cost and, and rewarded and or penalized as a result of that cost. You know, if without saying any more, if you just stop and think about it, not being able to incentivize or frankly require patients to go to uh, providers that are part of that ACO and yet holding the ACO providers accountable for the cost of care given to an outside uh, entity, it makes no sense. And so you begin to see, I think, um, you know, where the system is going. And, and you know, that I think is a big change maybe of, of prior attempts on health reform. You know, probably like you two, and, and certainly for myself, I get asked a lot, you know, healthcare is a little bit of uh, the argument is we're kind of chicken little. You know, the sky's always falling, the sky's always falling, and yet, you know, it keeps on chugging along. So people say, well, why is this different? And I think it's different because the dollars are really lining up with the policy. The dollars are going down. They're consistent with where the policy is going. Whether you like the policy or not, the money is sort of following and incentivizing that type of behavior. Where I think a lot of health reform in the past, certainly sort of the way we started, like the industry response to things, a lot of that was the industry trying to sort of guess where policy was going. I think now there's always a little guesswork, but the dollars are really pointing the direction. Value-based, bundled payments, ACO models, managed care models, the movement to population health, um, the... All of that is really driving many of the things that we started our conversation with and many of the things that, that you and I and our, and our, and our fellow uh, folks in the United States are feeling as, as patients when we go to the physician. So just a, an off-the-wall question to you both as we wrap up uh, today's show. If you were going to a Halloween party as something representative of healthcare law and policy, what would you go as? <laughs> Oh, my. I guess, how about the uh, ghost of failed cost containment plans past? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, yeah, I'm not even going to try to top Frank, but as you're saying that, first I, I chuckled. It's a wonderful question. You know, I, thoughts that came into my mind, and I, I actually um, gave a little quiz to my students to, in one word, they had to describe the healthcare system, you know. Um, but but I was thinking of, you know, is it a giant question mark? Is it one of those suits where you've got sort of those wildly large and fake sort of uh, firecracker type devices that just go exploding all around like in the co- <laughs> like in the cartoons, you know? <laughs> you know, something along those lines, probably very fitting. How about yourself, Nick? What would you say? I'm going as a Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all right. <laughs> and that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A very special thing. Thank you to Professor Singer for joining us. Larry, that was great fun. A wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. We post our show notes at twill.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached this week? Please reach me at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. And enjoy your trick-or-treating.